my gosh. It's the carrot up after school, Cedar Camp Power All right, all right, all right. Oh my gosh, best intro music ever. Thank you all so much for being here for the very first Caro Dove After School Theater Camp Power Hour. Um, I'm Caroline, and I'm really excited that this is happening. Um, this is something that I've wanted to do for a while um, because I'm a theater person and I love to hear myself talk. Um, and it's kind of a cool combination of all the things that I love talking about, which is theater and politics and history and, um, yeah, so I'm going to talk a little bit about what this episode is going to be about, and then, um, just to give you all kind of like a, a general background of the history of it, and then we'll take a little break, and then I'm going to bring on my guests. Um, Amanda Forstrom and Karina Hilliard, and I'm real, real excited. Um, so first things first, today we are talking about censorship and politics in the mid-20th century and how um, theater was responding to those things and how kind of like they all kind of oscillated and it was very circular and that Theater was responding to the politics of the time, which was responding to theater, and we'll get into that. Um, but we're going to be focusing on the terms of fascism, communism, and kind of the, the different um, feelings that the American public and the American government had about these things during the time. Um, but just a little bit of backstory to get into that. Um, when communism kind of made its way onto the to the um, international stage was 1917 when it was the Russian Revolution which ended centuries of imperial rule as well as a very bloody end to the Romanov dynasty um, which really just shattered my life when I heard that Anastasia didn't actually just like smash what's-his-face into the ground and then um, go live her life with Dimitri but that's fine um, Russian Revolution was led by Vladimir Lenin and the Bolsheviks. Later, they renamed themselves into the Communist Party. Um, and the world by 1917, it had been watching uprisings and power shifts all over Europe and Asia as people were starting to fight back against just centuries of colonization and monarchy. Um, but the pendulum swing was very bloody and violent, um, as these things often are. Um, one of the most famous, iconic, bloody, life-changing, world-changing moments was three years earlier, in 1914, when Arch Archduke Franz Ferdinand was assassinated. And that was kind of the pivotal moment of inception for World War I. Um, so let's fast forward a few years. Um, after World War I, there was a lot of um, political unrest in a lot of European countries. And we started seeing communism, socialism, Marxism on one side, and then nationalism, fascism on the other side. And one of the really, really big, famous, scary wars was the Spanish Civil War, which was from 1936 to 1939. Um, and America was in a tricky position at this point because a lot of citizens were going, volunteering to be uh, soldiers or medics or volunteers of, of other kinds, helping uh, carry um, 
food and other um, items that soldiers needed, they were fighting to help the Spanish Republican forces. And uh, this group of Americans was called the Lincoln Brigade. And it wasn't just Americans, it was Canadians, Frenchmen, uh, uh, Soviets, um, and they were all trying to keep the democratically elected socialist government in charge while Francisco Franco and his nationalists were, um, they, they just basically did a coup in, in 36 and there was just all this bloody, bloody, bloody war because of that. Um, and of course they were also being funded by Nazi Germany. They were also being funded, Franco and his fascists, they were being funded by the United States. There were a lot of people in the US, um, uh, public figures, politicians, bankers, um, who had a vested interest in Franco winning the war. Um, so it was really weird because a lot of the, there was a lot of trade happening with Spain and with Germany and Italy in the 1930s during the Great Depression. Like I said, a lot of big banks and politics politicians, excuse me, were funneling money into fascism abroad while they were also stoking the hatred and the fear of communism and socialism and Marxism back home. Um, the economic tie that we had with fascist uh, regimes in Europe in 1930s was one of the reasons why it took us so long to enter World War II along with general anti-Semitism and the feeling that after World War I and a really horrible Great Depression, we had no business getting into foreign affairs. So those were kind of like the big three things. Um, and it wasn't until we were attacked, one of our submarines, uh, one of our boats was attacked by a submarine, a German one, that we changed our mind and also Pearl Harbor. Um, but, but for the first part of the war, we really wanted to keep away from it. And there was a lot of divide in our country as to ideologically who we were going to support. Um, so in response to all of this communist fear going on during the time, uh, the Congress created the House on Un-American Activities Committee. That was created on May 26, 1938. And it was kind of doing its thing for about a decade but it didn't really gain traction in, in our country until about 10 years later when an executive order from the desk of President Truman created the precedent for keeping extreme tabs on anyone within the federal government who might have had ties to the Communist Party in the 20s and 30s. Um, overall, the HUAC called witnesses for two decades using scare tactics and threats of jail time and job loss in order to manipulate American citizens into accusing old friends and colleagues of being communists. The era of McCarthyism, because that's kind of the, the term for this, for this red scare time is McCarthyism, even though it began before McCarthy got really big and then ended a few years after he kind of resigned in disgrace. Um, but the era of McCarthyism, so it ended in the late 50s, when he ruined his reputation and changed the public's opinion of him because he was going so far into this paranoid spiral that he decided to accuse the military of communist sympathy. Um, so that's really what turned public opinion away from him along with a couple other things, which we'll get into later. This is just an overview. Um, 
but the damage had already been done. There were decades of fear and hatred of communism that largely overweighed the actual threat in the United States, but it moved our country drastically to the right, and it's really narrowed the scope of political ideology in the United States. And, and we're still reeling from that today. I mean, we're in an election year right now. There's, there's, there's so many instances of either the fear or the mistrust or the romanticization on the other side of socialism and communism and Marxism. And we're, we're still in a really tricky, bumbling place when it comes to knowing how we could use socialism to better our country. Um, yeah, so that's kind of the historical political overview of what was happening in the world and what was happening in the United States at the time of this House of Un-American Activities Committee was going on, um, which really had a huge effect on, on the arts and theater and Hollywood, and we're going to get into that. Um, but first, we're going to take a little break. I'm going to get my guests on. We're going to talk about some things, and it'll be great. So I'm going to take a quick two, and then I will get Amanda and Karina on here. Um, all right. Well, here we are. Oh, my God. Thank you both so much for being here. Um, I really appreciate it. You're, you're my guinea pigs for the very first one, and I'm really excited to, to chat with you all. Um, so for those in the chat and for those in the podcast listening um, in the future, uh, <laughs> Karina and Amanda and I all did a production of Top Girls together a few years ago, back in 2017, I think. Something like yes. that? Yeah. That sounds right. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Exactly. Mm -hmm. um, and I just remember it being such like a really special and meaningful artistic process. And also um, the table work was just so much fun. I just remember we had so many excellent conversations about the work and what it meant and, and how it applies to society today. And so that's kind of where I want to begin today, because this podcast, for me, I really want to focus on theater and social change and, and how those two things intersect. Um, so I guess my first question, and it may seem a little like of a no-brainer, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Would you consider Top Girls to be a play about social change? Yes. You want to take this one? <laughs> yes, yes, yes. First, thanks, Caroline. Thank you so much for having us on. Um, I, I the other day just got out my first uh, or our like you know the Facebook memory pop up of our first read. Wow. Um, I don't know if that's right or not. It must have been because we did the performance in November. November. Yeah. Yeah. That must have been right. So um, yeah, just great memories, and I remember after that first table read just being like wow what a amazing group of artists but also just like super really fruitful conversations that we were having and I you know I, I felt like a, a massive sense of catharsis by the end of the process but even by the end of the table read just kind of like <laughs> putting it all out there on the table literally um, and so yeah I mean Top Girls of course is a 
is a commentary on Thatcher Britain in in that time, um, and it it put it pulled no punches with that. It um, you know myself I portrayed the character of Marlene and she had a lot of opinions that I do not hold <laughs> myself, mm. um, such as the nature of acting. Um, but you know it's it's it was fascinating to me how even you know after we would do a show or a performance someone would come up to me and be like well do you really do you really have those opinions you know about um reagan and and how and how strongly how strongly conservative are you and i'm like well i'm an actor i don't <laughs> i was like i'm portraying those emotions i'm so glad you think they're mine um but but they're not <laughs> and but you know that's you know that's a part of acting of course but it's fascinating to me to be able to you know, jump into those shoes and portray someone with uh, opinions and thoughts that are just completely opposite to your own. Um, because, you know, I'm much more connected with the character of Joyce and, and her her upbringing and her social status and her uh, her experiences than Marlene's. But, um, you know, so so for sure, for sure, I, I, I definitely think it, it is and was and it and it was unapologetically so. Hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, it's like you've read my notes. Wow. <laughs> um, <laughs> I was, I was in there. I was peeking. Yes. <laughs> so one thing I want to uh, just kind of piggyback off of what you just said is, is that Carol Churchill is seen as a social feminist. Um, and it really is just a blatant criticism of Thatcher and Thatcherism and her view on social issues. Um, as someone who, I don't know, I, I see Margaret Thatcher and I see Marlene uh, as someone who is a little ruthless in her desire to climb to the top and a little uncaring when it comes to those she steps on along the way. And I think those could be, you know, defined as like terrible personality traits or they could be defined as defense mechanisms because mm -hmm. how are you supposed to succeed in a world that has already been designed to, to step on the weak? So it's, it's just this really, it, it's a very complex thing for me. Um, yeah, I agree. Yeah. It's, it's, that's... Um, it's interesting. I mean, I think the one thing that we talked about in the table read that really stuck with me, I think it was something that uh, Jessica Lefkow mentioned that how, um, you know, Mar Margaret Thatcher was known as, um, you know, not the person who sort of like the fee first female that broke that, you know, that glass ceiling, but she she broke that glass ceiling and then she kicked the kicked the ladder away for the rest of us, you know, yeah. and that like the... <laughs> the visual that comes with that is so strong and so powerful. And like, as we were going through rehearsals, I can't constantly had that. Yeah. I think she uh -oh. might be frozen a little bit. Oh no. Such is the nature of Zoom. Ah! Karina, well, anyway. Back. We miss you. <laughs> um, well, Amanda, I have a question for you. And well, I'll first, first I'll say yeah, thank please. you for having us on. And this is like an awesome conversation. Number two, 
I will always sound dumber than someone with the British accent. <laughs> so it really doesn't matter what I say oh. at this point. Oh my God. Um, yeah, same. But uh, no, I, I absolutely think Carol, Carol Churchill wrote Pop Girls. Is a, it's a, um, definitely a, a piece for social change. Yeah. Um, and a commentary on you know, what it means to be feminine, a, a female, and we're still struggling with those things today, very much so. Absolutely. So, sorry, go ahead, your question. Yeah. Um, <laughs> oh no, Karina. Wow, what a time. Um, what a time to be alive. <laughs> what a time to be alive. Well, here's my question for you. Uh, I really want mm-hmm. to get your take on your two characters that you played. You played Patient Griselda and Nell. Mm-hmm. And I wonder for you, um, ah, she's back. Success. She came back. The oh, banana my God. And picture. I love this picture. Love it. <laughs> <The> banana picture. <laughs> it's good. Uh... <laughs> Welcome back. Love it. Censored. Yes. That's <laughs> it's a show about censored. Maggie Thatcher's ghost came up and like. Someone was like. Not too I don't think off. so. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so then I came back with a banana in my mouth. Yeah. For everyone. Well. So I, I apologize. I think it was a shaky internet. Apologies. Yeah. yeah. No, that makes sense. It um, happens. Here well, we are. 2020. <laughs> yeah. Honestly, like nothing, I don't think anything can surprise me anymore. Okay, knock on wood though, because I don't, you know what? Yeah, I, right. I'm going to take that sentence and I'm putting it back into my mouth. That never happened. I didn't say anything. <laughs> Moving on. So um, I was just asking Amanda about the two characters she played in Top Girls, Patient Griselda yes. and Nell. And separately and together with those two characters, do you feel like there's any way you can compare the two of them? Like, like how how was it for you as an actor to create kind of the through line of the piece with, with two different people in two different worlds, universes, um, and, and what do you think Churchill is saying about feminism and a woman's role in a man's world with each of these two characters? Um, first, I think, you know, doing two really, you know, sort of dichotomous characters. I mean, as an actor for that, that challenge is really awesome because you get, and as a female too, I mean, you get, and I'm, you get to explore sort of the the breadth of what that is, you know, as um, selfish, selfish desires or completely living for somebody else. Mm. Um, as in, you know, patient Griselda and then Nell doing everything sort of like Marlene, where she knew what she wanted, didn't really care about anybody else. And that was the way that she lived her life. And, um, and I think that, you know, those people live in everybody. So, I, I mean, I really loved it. And I think that the piece needed every character in order to really fully get what Carol Churchill was trying to, to tell us about femininity and ta- that it can't be anything specific or pinned down or, um, oops, sorry, something's giving me a message here. Um, and they're not, you know, certain behaviors or tracks or 
things you have in your life or people you have in your life. It, it is really all about what you personally want. And I think mm. that's really important. Yeah. I don't know if I ever told you this. I feel like maybe I did. Um, but in, in the, in the first scene, the, the dinner party scene, the line that I would always listen for, like was really important for me in my journey, getting to the end with the monologue about leading the women into the gates of hell and getting revenge, um, was your line about how your husband, you, you just realized that he didn't need to put you through all of that. And mm -hmm. I don't remember the exact line, but I just remember it just, it got me every single time because it was just like, yeah, I feel like there's so many women who live where they've internalized this just expectation of how they're meant to be treated and, and um, how they're meant to respond to that treatment. And just to get this one little glimmer of realization that maybe you deserved more was it's just so powerful it was a really yeah, yeah. thank you yeah it was yeah, yeah to uh, you know like Karina said to play somebody so uh different than yourself but also you know that's the beauty of being an actor right you get to explore the parts of you that are like oh what is that <laughs> you know yeah. what is that thing and and what is it to live completely for somebody else and what is that how do I put myself in that headspace and it's just it's just a beautiful gift. It might not feel good hmm. all the time, but for sit, you know, for everybody sitting there watching it, you know, recognizing that, you know, I brought this up when we were doing the table read is, uh, you know, my grandmother had a husband and four boys and really lived her life for them. And now she's kind of like, what do I do? Yeah. And, you know, sort of rediscovering who she is because it wasn't, not tied up in everybody else, mm -hmm. which is, you know, I mean, yeah. Yeah. I think that's a really, uh, thing that it's a huge thing culturally around the world that women are that shift, you know, putting our desires above other people's and how do you, you know, and how, you know, what, when is it like Marlene where it's just like, oh, okay, there's the nature of who she is, is, you know, step on other people, but how do you do that without, you know, negotiating everything else? Just, I mean, who knows if we'll ever figure it out. <laughs> so, yeah. Right. And then like, you know, in the so, so devastating loss of RBG so recently, like yeah. I just, I, you know, it's crazy to me that she, she is the reason that we are able, I am able as, as I, I am a mother, I have two children. I have a four-year-old and a two-year-old that I am able to do that as well as a, a full-time job, which I also have as well. And it's like this, this one incredible iconic lady has mm. opened these, all these doors for, for, for us women. And now she's gone and just like, so, so dearly missed. And I just, oh, I don't I, I don't even have words. I, I'm, I'm scared for the future. Um, and, and this is terrible, but I'm glad I don't have any daughters. Like, I, I, that's like a really emotional thing. And I'm, you know, I don't know if my boys will have husbands or daughters, but, you know, um, and now there'll be other girls in their lives. But I'm just like, with the way that things, the prospect of things 
the way that they are right now, I'm just like, I'm glad I have two little boys. It seems like that's almost like something that's not, not, not on the forefront of my mind as a mother. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's, that's incredibly powerful and, and heartbreaking that that's, that's a real relief. I've, I've talked to a lot of people who have, who have said, who are parents and grateful that they don't have, have daughters and, or who do, and they're scared. I have friends who have black daughters and are doubly exponentially more afraid. Mm. Um, and, and then I know people who want to have children and are just like, I don't know, like, am I selfish for wanting that? Like it's, it, yeah, it's very, it's very sad. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I have a, one, one last sort of thought about Top Girls that I want to kind of pose to you both. It was like a little ranty little paragraph that I um, <laughs> wrote <laughs> yesterday. Yes. So I'm just going to read it. And, Can you give it um, to us like a, like a, um, a great monologue? <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't remember the accent, but <laughs> the same, like the intention of wanting to kill the bastards will be yes. the same. <laughs> That's what I want to hear. Yeah. Yes. That's what we all want to hear. Honestly. Um, <laughs> so while Marxism and Churchill's writing both focus more on class than race, I do think it's important to note that the two are intrinsically tied together and have always been. In in our country, where racism is written to the Constitution, and in the United Kingdom, where the long history of global imperialism is still felt today and can be often seen in Churchill's work, notably in her play Cloud Nine, which deals specifically about Victorian imperialism and then um, kind of the the freer thinking era of the 70s, I think it's the 70s, in, in Act Two. Don't quote me on that. It's been a minute since I've read that play. Mm, not sure. Um, during the Red Scare in, in the United States in the mid-20th century, one of the many things that could get you accused of being a communist was if you supported racial integration. Uh, it, was, it was that, if you hung out with black people and you were white, that would get you. The, um, if, if they suspected that you were a member of the LGBTQ community, that could get you. If you liked to read, that could get you. It's like... <laughs> There's no end. So it's no accident, at least to me, my opinion, parody satire, that lawmaking American conservatives, regardless of the party names of whatever time, like I know conservatives used to be called Democrats. Let's just get that out on the table. <laughs> have long been pro-white supremacy, pro-male supremacy, pro-capitalist, anti-socialism, Marxism, communism, and anti-gender equality. Not only that, but they have continuously used the falsehood of white racial superiority to keep poor, uneducated, non-land-owning white people from empathizing and uniting with black people in this country. And that's a tactic that began during slavery and continued well into Jim Crow and beyond the 20th century and today. And indeed, I found a definition of social feminism that defines it as something that critiques the historical and material conditions of class, race, and gender oppression and demands the radical transformation of social structure. So I guess my, 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 my posit or my question or my thesis or whatever for that 
is, you know, we're right now we're dealing with some some very serious issues regarding law enforcement and and the the murder of black people. And along with that, I've just been on, you know, on Instagram, I've started following a lot of um really wonderful thinkers and writers and and a lot of them are are black women and a lot of the things that have been brought up are come down and distill to the the reality of white feminism. So I just, I just was reading all of this and thinking about it and thinking how like social feminism and white feminism are complete opposites. And that's how I feel. That's not a question. I don't know. (laughs) Does anything come up for you um, with that sort of grand statement that I just made? Uh, redefine social feminism one more time. Absolutely. Social feminism is feminism that critiques the historical and material conditions of class, race, and gender oppression and demands the radical transformation of social structure. So, like, what does that look like? I guess right now. Well, so when you said that, when you, but you said that Churchill was considered a social, social feminist, feminist, right? Yeah. I mean, um, maybe it's just me, but I don't think that she's demanding the, you know, um, what was, what was the last line of of that demanding radical is a radical transformation, transformation. Yeah. It was more, yeah, yeah. I mean, it felt more like a like a like a commentary or this is this is what it is, you know, yeah. in 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 regards to her work, yeah. um, specifically. And I think it's just like it's holding a mirror up. Um, yeah. Do what do what you want with it, um, rather than a demand per se. Yeah. 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 That's right. my, I agree. My take. Yeah. And then um, your other part. <laughs> <laughs> the other part was so what were you saying with the two parts that you felt like a complete opposite yes white feminism and social white feminism feminine. yeah I feel like that's a term that's been going around a lot in the last few years well and I think I'd have to ask for a term for uh, a like, definition of white feminism. yeah because I think <laughs> a lot of different people have different interpretations of what of they what think means. or perceive white feminism is yeah. and three white women might not be the ones to comment sure sure <laughs> on you yeah. know just to yeah I throw that out there from but from whatever I've read about it or seen it in in different contexts I feel like what it means is that it's a feminism that centers white women over every other kind of woman that centers cis women that centers middle-class women and high-class women over um, disabled women or women Mm -hmm. lower economic households. So I guess the reason what, what in top girls made me think of this is the idea it is the attitude that Marlene has towards Angie. 
mm-hmm. because I think Angie represents the undesirable woman for whatever reason. She's difficult. She's a little violent. She's stupid. She is, yeah, she, she's, she's not, she's not someone who Marlene wants at her business. Mm -hmm. I mean, as we see in act two. Um, So I, I guess I always like throughout the play when we were working on it and then after just thinking about it, it just really has stuck with me that I don't know. Throughout the last century, I feel like when people talk about social feminism, I'm like, that is what a, the feminism of equality should be. Like, it, And even ignoring the word demands in this definition that I found, the mm. fact that it intersects class, race, and gender oppression is just so cool to me. And I feel like white feminism, whatever the actual definition is, mm-hmm refuses to acknowledge intersect. And I guess that's what I mean about that. (laughs) (laughs) I agree with you. I definitely think that there is a, there is a white, white feminism for sure. I mean, you see it all over the the social media, you know, the white, the centering of white, white pain always. Um, you know, even during the Black Lives Matter movement, there's always, you know, white women mostly putting, putting themselves at the centre of pain. And, and not to say that their pain is valid, but right now that is not what's in, in danger. Hmm. That we, our, our black members of our community, um, primarily the black young males of our community are in danger. And so therefore that's where the focus should, should have been. And so... Um, this I the the definition that you gave of the social feminism Mm. that that's super interesting I've never heard it described like that before yeah I think that is a ideological ideal yeah absolutely absolutely um that we should strive for (laughs) yeah but um I find that in, this interesting now that I understand. I understand a little bit more clearly about you know you're talking about them being so opposite. I I would absolutely agree with you. Yeah. Um, in in that. Um, but let's uh, yeah focus more on this on that on that social feminism and try yeah. to try to reach that ideal. Yeah, that's what I think. I I agree, and I think those were the words that I was trying to put in your mouth all along. So thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. Happy yeah. to. Mm-hmm. Um, good. Great. So before I brought you all on, I was talking a little bit about communism and McCarthyism and the Red Scare. And I want to get into a little bit how that affected Hollywood and theater in the, in the two decades that the House on Un-American Activities Committee was really, really powerful. Um, um, okay, so the Truman Executive Order from 1947 was order number 9835. And um, this was kind of, it it was called the Attorney General's List. And this was a list of organizations with ties to communism, fascism, and other subversive groups. And anyone with ties to those groups 
groups would face serious scrutiny before being able to get a job in the federal government or before being able to keep their already held job in the federal government. But the list was then published and it was used in employment discrimination against citizens in both the public and the private sectors. So the first thing that happened um, was the subpoena of 40 plus Hollywood um, SAG members, big icon faces of Hollywood. Um, they were brought before the committee and then they were questioned about communism. And um, have you all heard of the Hollywood 10? Oh gosh, I have, but it's been a while. Yeah, yeah. And Amanda, this is, mm -hmm. I, I really want to get your, because um, I know you've done so much Brecht, or I, when I think <laughs> of Brecht. You're like the queen of Brecht. You're the queen of Brecht, really? Amanda. You do all the Brecht at Constellation. Oh, so <laughs> you better know That's not a good thing to be, question. is it? I love I've only Brecht. only done one Brecht show. I don't know. Uh, I'm going to keep calling you the queen of Brecht, <laughs> and that's what you have to be now. <laughs> huh? um, God. But you did, you did um, Caucasian Chalk Circle, is that right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. Well, Brecht wasn't one of the Hollywood 10 that I'm talking about, but he was questioned at the exact same time that this yes. was happening. Yep. Um, the Hollywood 10 are the 10 uh, directors, producers who refused to answer the questions, and then they were sent to prison because they refused. They were found in contempt of Congress. Um, yeah, they refused. Uh, one screenwriter, and his name was John Howard Lawson, he compared actually several of them did but notably he and Dalton Trumbo compared the coercive methods and intimidating tactics of the committee to the oppressive measures enacted in Nazi Germany and then to like massive applause um, from from people watching in the gallery he was like I am not on trial here this committee is on trial and I was watching I've been watching a lot of footage of it and I was just like this, this is like rock stars. Like this is like, <laughs> this is what democracy looks like. This is so cool. Like they, they faced, they lost their jobs. They were barred from making movies with Hollywood again, ever again. And, and some of them went on to, to use pen names because haha loophole, but they, <laughs> they really, and like listening to the, um, to the audio footage of this, the committee would like ask them questions and then they would like turn them around and then they would get the gavel and be like, you know, you got to shut up and, and stuff. And it's just like, this is, I reclaim my time. I reclaim my time. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Oh, oh my God. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, two of the people, two of the Hollywood people who complied were Ronald Reagan and Walt Disney. Um, but who's surprised about that? <laughs> um, yeah. So I'm going to keep going through my notes because I have questions. Okay, so it was Hollywood that was kind of attacked first. And then theater and Broadway got really, really dragged into it. 
So McCarthy became the face of this whole anti-communist movement in 1950 when he pretty infamously addressed the Ohio County Women's Republican Club. And here's the quote. He said, I have here in my hand a list of 205 who were known to the Secretary of State as being members of the Communist Party and who nevertheless are still working and shaping policy in the State Department. And he's also been quoted as saying that he's like, even if there is one communist in the State Department, that will that is one too many. One too many. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Um, so here's what was interesting. Some playwrights seemed to be saved from being subpoenaed into the Inquisition because they started writing really, really blatant anti-communism into their plays. Um, so like Darkness at Noon by Sidney Kingsley and Barefoot in Athens by Maxwell Anderson are two, are two, um, that kept showing up over and over again in my research. But on the other side of that, there were, again, rock stars, playwrights who, who were really just defying this and saying, no, I have my right to free speech. Um, I'm allowed to say whatever I want just because I'm pro-union doesn't mean I'm pro-communist. Um, yeah, and a couple revivals happened that were really just hit a lot differently than they had when they originally came out. Um, so there's one play called The Male Animal that was about a professor whose curriculum was censored for being too red. And there's a scene where he's talking to some board members and, and they're going, they're having a back and forth and the board members respond to the question of this professor who's like, well, who has the authority to decide who is too red? And, and this is what he said, you fellows are too wishy-washy. Americanism is what we want taught here. And, um, so for me, obviously this brings to mind a very recent incident with Donald Trump where he said that he wants children taught pro-American history and this was in response to countrywide efforts to educate kids on the realities of the slave trade and, and slavery in the Constitution and in that same sort of little speech he used the same buzzwords of left-wing mobs and Marxist ideology to stoke fear in the communities that are listening to him. And, and it just, it really brought me back to 1950s Red Scare McCarthyism. Because I feel like they're using the same language. The language is the same. Um, yeah, I wanted to get your, your take on that. Did you hear about this, this new and ridiculous thing that Donald Trump said? I did. <laughs> I did this. Um, <laughs> yeah, this ex executive order, um, right? Uh, that wasn't it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. The executive order, the ban on racial sensitivity training. Um, mostly, uh, some of it was to to federal contractors, right? Um, basically, saying that if you do any sorts of training within in with within your work for the federal government, then you are. Um, and, and you say that that American America isn't anything but the best, or that you say that there is any kind of racial divide in America, then you are to be silenced. Mm. You are to be quiet. 
and that's terrifying. There's there's lots of, of you know federal contractors and, and and companies that are doing great DEI work, diversity, equity, and inclusion work, and now they're being silenced hmm. because they're being told that you shouldn't be doing this work because America is great and uh, there is no issue here, but yet it's worded in such a way. I believe like I was trying to find the um, the title of the of the piece. If you don't read it properly and realize what you're reading, the title of the actual executive order um, makes it sound like a good thing, right? Yeah. Yeah. Executive order on combating race and sex stereotyping. Oh, well, that sounds really important, and that yeah. sounds like something that we want to combat. <laughs> that we should do. Yeah, of course. And then you really read it, and you read it, get into all the nitty gritty of it, and you realize what is actually happening and that is terrifying and like the more that I learn and the more that I know the less that I want to because it's just I mean it's it's uh uh, this isn't a a specifically political like anti-Trump show I don't want to get on my horse but like I, I I have such visceral feelings about it I can't even say like his name without having a a thoughts and um and 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 concerns and fear and anxiety and all the things and yet there's a part of me that's like wow this guy is unbelievable like brilliant in the most narcissistic way ever i'm like how how, when there's something that that happens or anything that negative that kind of happens in in his that includes him i think this is it this is the thing this is the one right yeah and then somehow, like, he'll, he'll find a way to, or he or his team or whomever, to twist it so that it, it becomes this, like, this whole other thing. And, and he is no longer in the, in the I, I just don't know, it's so manipulative. But, like, you got to, like, admire. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, that, like, level of just complete narcissism. I mean, that is, like. Yeah, and that's why it really takes effort. And I am going backwards and forwards all the time because I'm like, oh my God, this is unbelievable. Wow, how did you do it? What's going to be the next thing? (laughs) (laughs) And that's all like, I, it's it's terrible, but it's the only way I'm getting through it because I'm having to find some sort of like fun within the the nuts, the madness. Yeah. Um, But yeah, yeah, but that, sorry, to backtrack. Um, that's just my own ramblings of, of my brain. Um, this order is terrifying. Um, so yeah, so if, if you haven't read it or properly read it and, um, I only really quickly looked at it because it was scary enough to me, but, um, I, I recommend that everybody do because what he's just signed into being is like really scary. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Has he signed that yet? Yeah. There's that. Great. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Yeah, no, I really relate to that because I, I am really loath to give him any credit whatsoever. But, <laughs> Fair. but I'm just like, yeah, bewildered and amazed that he's managed all of this and he continues to manage all of it. And I was watching the new John Oliver today about the Supreme Court nomination. Mm-hmm. And at one point he said something or or he he was talking about how 
the Republicans have been really sneakily nominating all of these conservatives to lower courts in this first term. Like it's over 200 conservative justices whom they've nominated. And that's like it's almost three. Yeah. Yeah. So like almost three times as much but as Obama, right? I, uh, I don't know if that's correct, but okay. I will say that th- these seats were not filled and they should have been. Yeah. And they left it open in 2016 thinking that Hillary Clinton was going to win and it didn't come through. And that's sort of like, hey, you can't count your chickens before they hatch. You Absolutely. And so I think we did a lot of that in 2016. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I, you know, I, as much as it sucks, it's kind of like, you know, and, and same thing with this, you know, with the Supreme Court nomination. I just feel like if you make a law that you want to do right now because you're in power and it's going to benefit you, would you make that law and would you like it if somebody else was in power? And it pisses me off because both parties are just being ridiculous. They really are. They really are. Yeah. And, you know, both of them are trying to change rules that have rules that are like the filibuster, the filibuster. Why would you change that rule? Why would you have to have it be, you know, a simple majority in the Supreme Court? Well, I, I, when, when Harry Reid changed those rules, he was in power and he knew what he was doing. And even Mitch McConnell cocaine Mitch, right? Like you said, it's going to come back to bite you in the ass. And it did. And it's, it's a shame, but what everybody is doing is power grabbing when they get the chance. Yeah. And that's like, nobody wins. Yeah. That's what's I mean, so they frustrating. Win. They win. Exactly. We don't win. <laughs> exactly. That's what's been so frustrating to me lately is that it's just so many little fights and squabbles. And meanwhile, nothing, no more cares act has been passed. Like my unemployment was frozen at the beginning of July because there were a lot of people, I guess, who were, um, uh, committing fraud, trying to get money that they didn't need. $550 million worth of fraud in the state of Maryland alone for unemployment benefits. Yeah. So I had to send in a bunch of IDs, to prove that I am who I say I am. And it's, it's almost October and my account is still frozen. I have money on my unemployment card that I am not able to get access to. It's just, and it's a nightmare. And of course they're going to be bad actors like that, but it's like, God, these politicians are so inundated with this bureaucracy and these games and these paybacks for earlier things that like, we are term suffering. Limits. <laughs> term limits. The only thing that I agree with Ted term Cruz limits. on is term limits. <laughs> yeah. And you can't get money from lobbying afterwards. Boom. That's, yeah. Freaking. I know there are great yep. lobbies. There are also <laughs> some really shitty ones. Um, I want to take a break really quick. We've been at it for about an hour. So um, let's come back at 10.05. And then when we come back, I really want to get into um, talking to you about some of the modern art that's been made about censorship 
um, I want to talk about The Cradle Will Rock and this really wonderful documentary I just rewatched for the first time in a few years called Theater of War, which is mm -hmm. the, the Meryl Streep, uh, Tony Kushner adaptation of Mother Courage that they did in 2006 mm -hmm. at The Public. Um, and then, for everyone in the chat, we have a very special treat. Uh, these two brilliant actresses are going to do a scene, just a little excerpt from a play called Gideon's Knot, which is a really fabulous two-hander, long-form debate about censorship <laughs> and uh, school bullying and self-harm, and it's, it's, it's phenomenal, and I am really excited. So let's come back at, well, now I've just rambled for another 60 seconds. So let's come back at 10.06. Um, and then you, we'll continue. Thank you, 10. Thank you, 10. <laughs> Thank you, 10. Ding! Ding! Great. So we're back. I want to talk about, gosh, I have so many things that I want to talk about. So little time. <laughs> I want to talk a little bit about the Federal Theater Project real quick. So the Federal Theater Project was this really, really cool thing that FDR's administration came up with in the 30s to help employ a bunch of out-of-work artists. Um, yeah, it was created by Congress in 1935 to give jobs and enrich cultural experience during the Great Depression, and it was funded by the Works Progress Administration and headed by Hallie Flanagan, uh, and she was a um, theater professor at Vassar College. And she's actually one of the characters in the movie The Cradle Will Rock, which um, talks a lot about the Federal Theater Project. I mean, it's, it's about a, a, a production of a musical, a play with music, much in the style of Brecht, called The Cradle Will Rock. And it ended up being... And I love how they call it a play with music as well. It is specifically yes. a play specifically. with music. With, yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's it's one. It's not a musicale. No, it's a play with music. With music. A musicale is too much. It's different. Right. There's not. It's not a lot of music. It's a little music. <laughs> yes, it's not music. All all music. Except there was so much music. In Brecht. <laughs> so much music in fact. Yes. Yeah. Um. So before actually we get into the Federal Theater Project, I want to ask Amanda. What was it like when you did uh, Caucasian Shock Circle? How much music did you use? Can you speak to the alienation technique that Brecht uses in his work? And, and um, how much of that did you all use or put away when you put on your production? Um, well, I actually did... Uh, um two productions, one in college and then one in uh, one at uh, Constellation Theater. Yay, awesome, love you guys. Um, and both were wildly different, which is so great about Brett. Um, you know, it's just sort of in whatever time and however you want to do it. And the thing that I like about Brett is that you can not only, the director and sort of the cast can make it what you want, whatever social change message that they want to bring about and show, um, you can do that. Um, for the Constellation production, it was very traditional in the fact that it was set in Georgian and like the choreography and the music had that sort of Georgian um, uh, Caucasus Mountains feel to it um, mm -hmm. and sort of the costumes loosely. Um, 
in my view, I would not have necessarily done that. Um, at the time, we were talking a lot about the drone striking in Syria uh, mm -hmm. during the Obama administration and how many displaced Syrians there were. And that is what that play is about, displaced people, uh, whether they're immigrants at the border, Syrian refugees. Um, and I, that's sort of like what I wanted it to be. Um, um, because I don't even think Brecht would want you to do it the way Brecht did it at the Brecht <laughs> time, you know. Um, but that's just again, that's you know my my sort of opinion um, about it. But um, yeah, you know, the uh, guy in the cast and his sort of writing partner and the, who did the music, they, we had a full like band the whole time, and we sang and wrote. You know, there's at least I don't know, 15, 16 songs. I mean, it was pretty pretty hefty um and so and that's something that's usually cut out which I really liked about that production yeah so anyway yeah I digress that's interesting Brecht. that it's usually cut out all the music I think usually um oh gosh Grusha has like uh, keeps a you know a couple songs and they're you know of however whatever the director sort of wants to put in there of the time that they're setting the play or what they want to speak about or a song that's moving to them. I mean, you could, she could sing John Lennon's Imagine, you know, and it would fit in there, you yeah. know. So uh, uh, a lot of people keep sort of Grusha singing a couple times or Aztec singing. But I mean, this was a full everybody singing harmonies, the whole the whole nine, which was really cool, which is really cool because I think it had a nice feeling of setting it up like you know hey guys this is a play putting on a play ready everybody go and uh one of the questions that i always love asking directors about brecht if you really want to like get into it is do the people when i come on stage as like amanda or actor you know f whatever um number nine <laughs> is do I know and have I, because they there are lines in the beginning of the play that say, oh, we've rehearsed this. So if we've rehearsed it, am I always playing the same character? What does that say about me and my role in the refugees, hmm. in the displaced people? You know, it's kind of like these layers that you can just like keep going down, which is just awesome, you know? So anyway, okay, stop yeah. me. Stop me. No, I love it. Um, Karina, have you ever done Brecht before? I've never had the privilege yeah. of a Brecht of being performing in a Brecht play. I've read a lot of Brecht. Uh, uh, I, I, mostly when I was studying a lot of it. Turn your cell phones off. Sorry. That is wow. so rude. Wow. <laughs> um, but um, I just remember seeing um, a version of the Thripney Opera. Um, when I was in college and it was terrifying. Um, I just remember it being really aggressive and, um, in your face. I mean, it's, it's, it's an, uh, a play about, you know, like a, a 
a farce on a, on different um, operas, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it just I remember it being like a lot, a lot of. Um, I don't remember a lot about it other than like a lot of people were holding picket signs and a lot of like, and then like guy singing Mac the knife with a knife yeah. in his hand. And like, mm. you know, <laughs> I remember being like, I don't know what this is, but it's three and a half hours long and I'm really liking it. Yes. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, and I didn't get the chance to see Caucasian circle at constellation. I really, yeah. really wish I had. Um, yeah. Have you done any, Caroline? Have you done any Brecht? I haven't. I haven't. I have also read a lot of Brecht. I've seen some Brecht. Um, and and this uh, documentary that I was telling you both about, I don't remember if we were recording or not, but here we go, um, <laughs> uh, called uh, Theater of War. I saw it in college. Um, it was made in 2008, and it, it, it's detailing the 2006 rehearsal and production of Tony Kushner's adaptation of Mother Courage and Her Children. Um, and I just remember loving it back then, and they talked a lot about how for that particular production, 2006, we were in the middle of the Iraq War. There was a lot of protesting going on about that at that time, and one of the things that was so cool to me was they were interviewing the costume designer and she was talking a lot about how the the director, George C. Wolf, no big deal, um, didn't want any of the costumes to give the sense of any particular specific war. So a lot of her um, uh, research was it was Vietnam War, World War One, World War Two, Spanish Civil War, um, Korean War. And then she was like, and honestly, for my research, I can just look at the front page of the news because that was the world that we were living in at the time. Um, and I and I think that really speaks to a lot of what you were saying, Amanda, about like it doesn't need to be what Brecht was doing because the universal aspect of his work it's still here today. It's still, it, it works with the drone strikes in Syria, um, his work. His work works when it's talking about children in cages at the border, the Iraq war. It's so heartbreakingly universal. Mm-hmm. Um, to speak to what you were saying, Karina, about the Three Penny Opera, and this is also from the same documentary, um, one of the the people who they interview a lot in it is he's a professor uh, he's a professor on Marx and Brecht. Um, Ooh, and it's what a combo! Brecht. Yeah, exciting. Um, Must be a real nice guy. <laughs> yeah, he's like he's I don't know who he reminds me of. I kept watching it last night just to oh, review, man. and and I was like, who do you remind me of? And I. I can't remember who it is. I'm going to remember at four in the morning tonight. I'm going to wake up and be like, is that guy? Oh, well. Um, but this guy's name is Jay Cantor. And he, I just kept having to pause this documentary so I could write down everything that he was saying. And John and I were looking at each other like, holy shit, that is brilliant. Um, one of the things that he said was that, so the Three Penny Opera, he wrote a little bit earlier in his career. And it is, it's, it's violent, it's in your face, it's really just like, it packs a punch. And not to say that his later work is gentler, because it's not, but I'm going to just share this quote with you, because it's really, really wonderful. We suffer in our making, but if we could participate in that making, it would be our greatest joy. 
And outside of Mark's, Brecht wouldn't have had that. It would just be a scream of pain. So thinking of that in the context of Mother Courage, because that was the context of the documentary, it, mm. it was really interesting because it, it's, a, it's a heartbreaking, brutal play. It really is. Um, so it was really interesting to me that it was, it was being framed in a way that Brecht was showing us like the most horrible things that could happen, but the message was still one of hope. Um, yeah, one of the questions that Jay Cantor was asked in the documentary was, do you think we would have had Brecht without his discovery of Marxism? And at first he said, no, I don't. I think he had to have had Marx in order to be Brecht. But then at the end of the documentary, he changes that answer a little bit in a really lovely way. Brecht found in Marx that without some large cooperative action, we are doomed. Is that Marxism? No, but he found that in Marx. But you don't need to believe in the labor theory of value to think that's true. It's the nature of the collective action to bring about a world in which we wouldn't be constantly warring with each other. Ultimately, even though Mother Courage is tragic, that is what brought him hope. Hmm. And I just love that quote. Interesting. Yeah. I love both of those quotes so much. And I and it's just clear to me that he has such a love and respect for Brecht and for um the fact that Brecht wrote Mother Courage after um after he left the United States, I believe, after he went through this um House of Un American Activities Committee and he was uh, brought before, and, and it's really cool, um, the, uh, his, there's a recording of him in front of the committee, and it's like he's putting on a play, because he was really good at English, but he was like, it's uh, the how you sit, and like, he was pretending <laughs> to be not as gifted at the language as he was, and it was like he was manipulating this committee. And it, it's just, it's, it's brilliant to watch. Um, yeah, anyway, I just thought that was so cool and, um, and really speaks to me just in terms of, of why we need theater right now and, and how, you know, things can be so bleak. And right now, especially like, you know, Karina, you brought up the, the recent death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. It's 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 really scary right now and it's bleak. And like, but, you know, the the curve of time, it curves, it curves towards justice. It's long, but it curves towards justice. And if we can try to imagine some sort of better collective future I think that's incredibly hopeful and, and one of the big lessons that we get from this political theater that was so censored in its day. And, and yeah, that is my posit to you all. <laughs> well, so I think Caroline, you know, that's a really nice transition into the federal theater project because like exactly. that, that is like, I didn't know anything about it, candidly. I'd never heard of that before. And so in my research, I was like, this is so cool. I was like, that they 
valued the the government valued the arts that much that they understood the 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 need for the arts and the need for for, for the public i mean just yeah. as much as we do right now more than ever you know without with the pandemic situation and you know and Lynn Manuel Miranda understood that, so then he high fived Disney Plus, and he was like, "Take it away, Hamilton." Hamilton. <laughs> you know, which I just I sobbed I, my I, way through. It's fine. Yeah, yeah, and then I, I like, and, and that's like on a bigger scale. But there's this like even just people sharing their, you know, visual art for free, and um, people are just like, it's coming out of their pores because they're like, I can't be creative the way that necessarily I want to be right now, but I want to share with you. And I know that this is bringing you joy and passion. And so people are just doing that and giving their art for free, for free, for free, for free. And um, just imagine what we could do if you had the backing of the government to, to, you know, help all these out of work actors and artists and designers and everybody um, in, at this time. I mean, it would be unbelievable. Absolutely. Uh, I don't think it would happen, (laughs) but but imagine if it did. I mean, I just think about like, you know, medieval times with like, like pageant wagons moving through town and like, yes. And like, when you want everyone's in their home anyway, like, can you imagine just being like, the pageant wagon is here, go outside. And it's like episodic theater and you watch a little bit. And then the next you're like, okay, let's go back out again. This there, is tomorrow. Someone, there is somebody doing that abroad. And I know they a are. Clown. That it is, is a new a idea. I, I swear to God, it's a <laughs> no, it's a clown. And he's going outside and he's doing like shows for kids, like on streets and stuff. And like, it's like a show in a van. And I had this conversation with Arthur Horizon about, you know, having a show in a van because that's what you got to do. Absolutely. Um, and I just, I just love that I, the idea of like kids at home doing their little Zoom classes, and then they're like, oh, pause, gonna go outside and watch the some. Clowns here. The clowns here. The ice cream, here, so. the ice cream <laughs> truck is here, and the clown yeah. truck is here. <laughs> 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 oh, that's nightmarish, or that's a good thing. Yeah, the I clown theater has arrived. The nightmarishness of it depends on the amount of ice cream that is also involved, <laughs> at yeah. least yeah. for me. Um, yeah, yeah. It, I, this really, we're, we're just going organically into this question that I wanted to ask about what could it look like now in COVID without a vaccine and then with a vaccine, like what, what is the, the utopia that could be for American theater? Well, I've, I've, thought this for a long time and maybe I've had conversations with either of you or both of you about that dance sort of went through this VR revolution and had to sort of this renaissance of what their medium is in our day and age and I feel like this has forced that on theater faster and I think it's a good thing. No, I don't think COVID is a good thing. Don't (laughs) like those people. Um, No, but I I really do think that our medium, you know, can't rely. I shouldn't say can't. um, That's an absolute. Um, I do. I just think that we are, we've been so successful and we should be very grateful for how far and how many artists have been employed and how great everything has been up until now. You know, what if a 
pandemic came five years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, you know, like you don't know. And so we've gotten where we are and that's great. And now we have a chance to use our creativity and imagination to reevaluate what could be through, you know, the VR goggles, through sitting in chairs, through what if the theater smelled this, like I have this vision of like sort of this theater theme park, like having, you know, um, things that you walk through, things that you can smell, like, you know, um, where you, I don't know, where you can feel the chill of Hamlet's father's ghost. You know, and it's actually scary. It's not just like, oh God, look, Hamlet's ghost. And it's like Claudius. Yeah, you know what I mean? I just, um, I think there's like a re, yeah, a rebirth that, that can happen. And I think that we can't get too bogged down in being like, woe is me, poor me, you know? And I, so to the question that you had or that I'm prompting myself on, it's like, what would you like to see when you come back? Two things, like a gratefulness for what we get to do. Because when we're talking about classism, not a lot of people get to do this, you know? And the fact that we are able to, whether, you know, family-wise or how we grew up or how we came to it, you know, that in and of itself we should be grateful for. And, you know, we might always have job security, but I think that, you know, uh, we were like, given a gift by by having our things shaken up a little bit and like a positivity and an optimism about it rather than this just like oh well how can we get back to them go back to how we were but that's not yeah. i don't why yeah um and also diversity if we're going to do that can we get, why can't women read for mental I, I just there's still the same number of men <laughs> yeah sorry absolutely yeah, no, I completely agree. And I just, looking back on, like, theater in all its forms all over the world, all over the country, in the past and today, there is so much wonderful, rich activism theater and, and theater artists and, um, and theater ideologies that involve the community and, and involve yes. um, well, celebration of everyone. Yeah. And, and it's not pretty we, and there's not a lot of money that you need, exactly. you know, and I think sometimes it's like, oh, we have to have these big things and, and spend all the money, this, get all the donors. Do yes, we, do we and really also, need that? And it's also to me too, when you talk about censorship, I feel like, first of all, I think, no, no censorship ever, whatsoever. And that's my opinion, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, but the, but sometimes I think we just do things that are comfortable for our audience faces and it's like, okay, well, why aren't we going to rural so-and-so because people have a lot to say about them. And it's like, okay, well, you know, we're making each other laugh and having a good time, but are we, who are we challenging? Who are we mm. talking to? And then why aren't we telling plays about that life to make our audience uncomfortable? Yeah. And I think, especially when we're so divided and we are supposed to be the most empathetic and understanding people where, hey, whatever goes, goes, and we'll try and understand you, we'll try to step in those shoes, we'll try to empathize with you, and I don't really feel like we're doing our job. Yeah, I completely agree. 
Um, and I, I actually, I have a note about that uh, a little bit later. One of the, the men who is interviewed in the documentary, the Theater of War one, is the public theater artistic director, Oscar mm -hmm. Eustace. And he has a really, really excellent TED Talk called, um, hold please, called <laughs> Why Theater is Essential to Democracy. And he talks a lot about how, you know, it, it really invites us to, God, the way he said this was just brilliant. Something about exercising the muscle of empathy, because it, it is, it's a muscle. It's something you have to exercise and work on. Mm -hmm. And also he challenges his very liberal, um, well-educated audience at this TED talk and then identifies the fact that most public theater audiences are liberal, well-educated, maybe a little better off with money, perhaps, unless they're doing like the new works program, that that is a failing on our part. We're not connected with middle America. We're like, I, I can't tell you how many times I've heard other people or myself say in one breath, you know, we have to reach out to Republicans and maybe get them on our side. And then in the other breath say, oh God, he's such an idiot. He's so stupid. Like there's this disconnect, I think, in a lot of us. And I think it speaks greatly to that divide that you're talking about, Amanda. Um, and he, um, Oscar Eustace really challenges us to, to think like, you know, if we look at the electoral map, all the places with all the dark blue to show like heavy, like Democrat leaning. Those are all the place also, it could be the exact same map for the places where all the cultural institutions are. And there's, okay. there's nothing in the middle of the country. I mean, there are a couple things like, you know, we've got the Guthrie, we've got like Cincinnati, like there, there's a lot of good stuff happening out there, but we've, we've kind of forgotten about them. And mm -hmm. the people who were boycotting Hamilton weren't gonna be able to afford a ticket anyway. Like, right. you know, like there's, there's no way, there's no real accessibility there. Um, mm -hmm. and, and God, it's, it's hard. It's tough. Cause like the lizard part of my brain is like, screw those people. But like, I also, those people are family members of mine. Those are people I went to high school with and college with. And it's like, well, and those are also people who are putting capital into the system so that we can afford to do what we do. Yeah. And, you know, I Feel like there's also this looking down upon for people who have work nights who are truck drivers who are farmers who are yeah. mm -hmm. as they're not smart they're less than they're poorer they're whatever and you those know, are the people we need the most right now and during a pandemic those are the people that those are the jobs that no yeah those are the middle workers. upper classes want to do and yet those are the ones that we need the most <laughs> yeah exactly and so I think that's something that we need to look in the mirror about as far as mm -hmm. you know you know when you're talking about how essential are we that's a tough question it's a really mm. tough question on an economic level it's an easy answer for an economist, I'll tell you that, you know, and we sort of found that out, but it doesn't, you know, and I think we just got very, very comfortable and we got very, very fortunate and very, very privileged. And I feel like we lost a lot of people in that divide. And I think now is a chance, like I said, to reevaluate how we make theater because it doesn't need to be expensive. 
and who we reach and where we go. Yeah. And theater training doesn't need to be expensive. Like that's another massive gatekeeping. What is theater? Oh, sorry. <laughs> I, I also have my MFA, so I shouldn't really talk. No, but, but I mean, you know, the, the, some of the best actors are people who have never had a class or know anything about it because they're so, they love stories. They love humanity. They love hearing people and where they came from and who they are. And they love sharing that with other people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know? So like some of the best musicians aren't the best technical musicians. Yeah. Just... Yeah. So. Absolutely. Well, so that was your kind of answer to the, when theater comes Sorry. back, what do you want to see? Um, I want to get a, a Karina answer to that. Um, if you have anything to add. Yeah. I, you know, I, I, to talk about like the federal theater project ish a little bit. And then into that, you know, I, my full time job is um, I'm a director of theater at a, a middle through high school also. And so which I'm trying to figure out for our season, how we can like reevaluate and re reimagine what the, what the season ahead is going to look like. Um, Cause we're taking the fall off to reassess. <laughs> so really the winter and the spring. And, um, you know, I know that students as well as us, you know, who are professionals in the industry are like craving it so badly and just want to be together. And I'm, we're trying to redesign and re-budget uh, and refinance where I normally put the money. So normally you put the money in the big sets and the costumes and all that sorts, sorts of great things, the big visual things, right? Um, you know, I am deciding to work within the parameters that we're given which is that everything has to take place outside so I'm thinking some sort of site-specific situation that has to happen socially distanced with kids probably with masks on audience can't be together like all these just ridiculous parameters that we're working within but then I decided to I was like I was like there are no plays that are gonna (laughs) that are gonna work for this at all so I was like so why aren't we spend the money on commissioning a great play right so Natalie Valentine I don't know if she's here or listening or will oh, be yay. um is going to be writing some new original work for me and my students and I'm so excited and um she has amazing ideas and there are you know plenty of playwrights who are just like out of work or you know ready for commissions that like this is the time right you know yeah. Let's, there, there's awesome. a lot. There's a lot of great plays that already exist. That's fine, right? And 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 they have their. They'll always their be plays. there. Yeah. That's right. That's right. They're not going anywhere. They're not um, going. <laughs> but like the, this is such a specific like time, and we have so many parameters. I'm working within, like I mentioned, and I'm like, this needs someone with a creative outlet, and she's just like, she is super excited to jump in and um and create this this. Um, this adventure for the students and it probably ends up going to be some we were talking about some sort of like driving theater where the audience drives through and then there's much more like interaction on different stops along the way and we're trying to figure out a way to I feel like the audience are going to become more important in this time and moving forward as well and I feel like they're going to be part of the dialogue instead of just like sitting observing and you know, I, I'm always so fascinated about the way that audience respond anyway. You know, some sit forward, some sit back, some like that, some like this and that. And 
the, the the commentary and the way that audience perceive work is interesting to me and I feel like the more you can get them involved the better um so probably like heavily improvisational but who knows like this is the time to be creative and fun with it and uh if you can make it work of course safely um you know do it um experiment because you really just don't get that could this kind of like gift of time to play like this unfortunately yeah um typically because it's like one one show into the next show into the next show into the next Mm -hmm. show all right take a quick little break and then go back and do it again you're playing your next season go 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 um and this is such a like a, a, a real like moment of um that like I'm, I'm really excited about um and so like when you ask the kind the kind of like overarching question like when we return to theater like what's that gonna look like or you know like I'm not like personally very thrilled to go back to the theater that we had um you know it doesn't look like our city it doesn't look like the DMV um and I think we got very comfortable like I know it was already mentioned and this just like this pandemic pause has been like almost a meditation I feel like and we should take that meditation and move it into action um but I just feel like you know what what's necessary we have to kind of decide like what is necessary right now yeah um and and what stories are necessary and what should we be telling and and uh, what stories and whose stories stories are we telling and simplistic storytelling and just like we we've been talking about relying on the actors and the storytelling and the playwrights, um, not the money and how big. And and I also think it was going to be joyful. I mean, we've like missed each other, um, you know, terribly. And I think we'll be like ready and willing and open arms. And I think. And funny. (laughs) Yeah. And everyone's going to want some more comedy, can want some comedy for sure. And And we're all going to cry on the first rehearsal that we go to. (laughs) Like I, Oh my God. It's just, just yeah. And I, and I also feel like, yeah, grateful and just, yeah, just like the assumption of good, you know, in people, like assuming that everyone's doing their best. Whereas I, I think I got, mm-hmm. I, I know I'm personally speaking for myself here. I can't speak for everyone. Um, that like I got to a point where I was kind of like either a little bit complacent or just sort of like oh so and so doesn't doesn't give a crap they always show up to rehearsal late or whatever and it's just like the assumption of just good everyone's doing their best and I um that's what I'm going to try to do anyway (laughs) yeah (laughs) try to assume assume everyone's doing their best yeah because I'm trying also (laughs) yeah yeah, I think that's I think that's wonderful. Um, thank you both for sharing. Yeah, I think that's really inspiring, and I re- agree wholeheartedly with with everything that you both have said. And I am excited also about this time of experimentation and this time of like reset and meditation, and then you know, like let's Grotowski it up towards a poor theater baby like let's you know accessibility and like audience inclusion yeah anyway I'm going to stop just repeating everything that you've already said and let's like get weird and try some stuff (laughs) yes (laughs) you know yeah I mean like come on yeah now is the time now is the time now is the time I love it the time is now yeah speaking of the time is now (laughs) um 
I think I want to close out with this uh, section from this play. It's called. Oh gosh, uh, I forgot we were doing that. Got <laughs> <laughs> so you're into it. Just talking. Yeah, you're just having a chat. Um, and this <laughs> is a play called Gideon's Knot by. Is it Jonna Adams? My brain wants I think it's to Joanna. say yeah. Joanna, but. I thought it was Joanna, but maybe I'm wrong. Well, we'll never know. <laughs> Unless she comments and She's like, gives us a phonetic, a phonetic yeah. pronunciation. Help. <laughs> um, great. Great, great. So if, if you all have your scripts ready, I'm going to give just like a, a small little, here's what you need to know going into this scene thing. Um, Good idea. So, so Gideon's Knot is a play that takes place completely in a classroom during a previously scheduled parent-teacher conference. Um, and the two women that are there are, there's the teacher, her name is Heather, and Amanda will be reading Heather. And then the parent, Corinne, and Karina will be reading Corinne. Oh. And what we find in, in the course of the play, um, before the point of, of the scene that they'll be reading, is that the parent-teacher conference was scheduled because Corinne's son, Gideon, got suspended from school. So she, you know, that was like kind of just the, we got to do this. We find out in the play, and um, here's a, a, just a content warning um, right off the bat, um, that he is a child and he ends up uh, killing himself because of uh, he's so ashamed of of um, being suspended and for the reasons behind it and there's and there's a lot in there so the right before what has happened before this section is heather reads aloud a story that gideon wrote um, that was found by the teachers and the story was the reason for his suspension it's a very uh violent heavy imagery story um and it there it talks about you know body parts and and murdering teachers and all these other things and it's really disturbing and so and i i saw this play at kitchen dog theater in dallas texas in 2013 and i just remember that moment where it seemed like it was 10 full minutes of heather just reading this story and i'm looking at it now and it's just like a page and a half but it seemed to go on forever. And I just remember looking at Heather is reading this story that she really doesn't want to read aloud for so many reasons. And Corinne was just staring off into space and just like letting it wash over her and just silently crying. And then, and then we get to the lines that you were about to hear. It is such a beautiful like reinvention of the messenger of Greek messenger speech. It's just like, mm-hmm. well, what a yes, gift. Absolutely. God, God. yeah. It's, it's beautiful. But it's excruciating. It's excruciating. Yeah, it is. It's very painful to listen to. Um, all right. I'm gonna I'm gonna hide myself so it's just you all. And then I will give you a cue to go when I've figured this out. All right, ready, go. 
He was passing it around the other students. It's my responsibility to I'm sure you understand. I'm sure you understand now. I don't know what it must be like to listen to this. I I can't imagine what I don't think at heart that he well, this hard to stomach. I know. Believe. No, this is. I know this isn't all there was to him. No, this is. I know he was. This is magnificent. This. This is wonderful writing. Strong, fearless. Fierce, brave, cruel, remarkable. This, 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 this is a wonderful story about art and its purpose, about a man and divine judgment. Oh God, it's beautiful. I. Disagree. Why? I have a responsibility to my students to protect them. From what? From things like this. Damaging things. Poetry? Hate-filled, poisonous attacks. Oh, God. He passed this around to a room full of children. What do you think children are? I know what they are. I work with them. For them every day. All right. What are they? Fragile. Fragile. Bullshit. Children are not fragile. They're stronger than any of us. That's not true. Yes, it's true. You want children to be something they aren't. Protected. Innocent. That is some ridiculous Victorian era idea that we've inherited about childhood, that it's sacred, that children are innocent and pure, and that they want to be that way or to, to stay I that don't way. think it's ridiculous childhood is not suspended state of innocence it is the condition of rapidly losing you innocence. asked what I expected you'd be like can't stop that from happening this you shouldn't want to this am I wrong yes oh god I put him here into the pit full of all the unenlightened, into the hands of An inability the conventional... to your responsibility is what I expected. Have you ever heard of the Marquis de Sade? I don't see the relevance. Have you heard of him? We don't teach him here. Yes, but surely you've heard. I've heard of him. Was he a genius? I don't think your son was a tortured genius, Ms. Bell. He has been studied for hundreds of years. 
I think something is wrong in his life. He's in libraries, except where they're censored by people with limited imaginations. Maybe he'd been hurt. Who the hell are you to, t- to tell my son what not to write about? His teacher. What were you teaching him? How to disappear into some mold you wanted to pour him into? This decision wasn't about him. It was about the other children and their well-being. Have you read the Marquis de Sade? Why? That's probably a yes. Did you enjoy it? This is a fifth grade classroom. This is a small box full of smaller boxes, one of which you tried to keep my son in. And when he couldn't fit inside it, he shot himself in the head. Over not fitting in a box cut to your dimensions. The Marquis de Sade is going to be in libraries and studied and marveled over for centuries after you are dead. Forgotten fifth grade teacher who failed to make a go at advertising. He was a beautiful writer. I don't share your appreciation for Makita's son. No. My son. Gideon. Was a beautiful writer. He wanted to be a writer. He was going to be one. Thank you both so much. I get chills every time. I really do. Thank you so much for reading that. Um, Yeah, just for anyone who might randomly just be tuning in at 1054 (laughs) at night, that was from Gideon's Knot, uh, a really beautiful play about censorship and free speech and creativity and... um, complicated and complex and with two really amazing characters in it and Mm -hmm. thank you both so much good Um, pleasure thank you thank you for having us i'd love to do that show thank you so much yeah um wow well you know that was that was all i had so i think we're good thank you for this wonderful conversation this has been really just energizing and invigorating and inspiring for me um i miss you both and it was uh, a pleasure to chat with you both tonight yes same thank you for having thank us you. Yeah. it's so good to see you you yeah. need some sort of caroline dubs out caroline dubs yeah. some sort of catch some sort of <laughs> catchphrase out i'm gonna get yeah. my boyfriend to write that for me because he wrote <laughs> the theme music too love it all right well um i'm gonna scooch y'all off the zoom and then say like just some closing words and then um i'll let you know when it's on the spotify if you want to listen to it yeah thank you for this conversation i i I just can't thank you enough and um no thank you it's so fun 
And actually, before you go, do you have any, where, where can people find you on social media? Or do you have anything coming up? Anything you want to plug? Uh, um, you can find me at karinahillia.com. Um, and um, also, I'm on Facebook and Insta at Karina Fay. And um, no, I don't have anything upcoming. Nothing is happening presently for me in the near near future anyway (laughs) um but yeah I'll keep you posted when when I do yay how about you Amanda um I'm on the book of the face and (laughs) with my name and uh um Instagram at Amanda underscore Borstrom I think and um yeah you just might hear my voice popping up places which is good and I'm thankful for so yeah excellent all right well thank you both and have a great night bye thank Thank you you. bye Bye. come on get out of here I'm I'm (laughs) I'm gonna kick you out don't even worry why all right. All right. Am I still on here? I think I am. There's been a a freeze. Nope. There we go. Awesome. Okay. Well, yeah, Caro Caro dubs out is it. Um thanks for tuning in. Tell your friends, tell your family. Um Monday nights at 9. I've got some really cool things coming up. I cannot wait to share them with you all. Um, Subscribe to MindSugar666. Good night, everyone.